0: be seated. Let's locate in our Bibles this evening the Old Testament book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 38. Last week we heard the troubling story about how a man and his family were spared God's judgment on a valley of immoral and unjust cities. Well, that's not troubling. That's actually good news. But unfortunately, that wasn't the full picture. Instead of settling in the city that God had preserved just for them, they made a series of choices that landed them in a cave where said man's daughters got him drunk, and took advantage of the situation sexually. Not, this is not to excuse what they did, but not for pleasure, rather to produce offspring. There was this sense in which they seemed to have believed that they were the only ones left. Now, if it made you uncomfortable to hear that story, uh, trust me, I wasn't thrilled telling it. However, at the conclusion, some were surprised by the redemptive truth that the sordid goings-on in Lot's cave kickstart a chain of events that ultimately bring us to Christ the Lord. And I personally was very encouraged uh, to to hear people saying, I hadn't actually connected those dots before. And and, um, some testifying to how they think about Shameful moments in their life. Moments of guilt. Yes, even post-conversion sin that has has cast a cloud over them. And uh, the way stories like this point them, if we see something of God's steadfast love then and there, how much more so we who are trusting in Christ? Well, tonight is better. Uh, uh, This time, instead of a man and his daughters, it is a man and his daughter-in-law who is disguised as a prostitute. Uh, It is marginally better, is it not? I I think. Um, It's also worse, for me at least, in the telling it, and I'm sure for you in the hearing it, as it does contain one of the more sexually explicit lines in all of Scripture. That being the case... The usual parental advisory warning applies when such things are there. I haven't always been good about giving those, but God has really blessed our congregation with children, and there are lots of little children, and of course, someone who wasn't here this morning and who didn't hear that could walk in any moment with the, with the kids, and that's on them. But um, we are dealing with God's Word and um, uh, not only do we, do we, do we say, um, you know, okay, parents have to be advised. There are no children, children here. Um, but we, uh, we, we should be sensitive to, to trigger warnings. Um, in the kind providence of God on any given Sunday, we have multiple victims of sexual violence present. And I do want to be sensitive to that. But also to encourage you, this is God's word. He redeems. He heals. Wrong cannot be undone. But much can be put right. And these stories, I hope, are ultimately not distressing, but encouraging. One man, actually, after Sunday evening's message, um, spoke with his wife and um, asked, you know, if, if this was something that, you know, she was comfortable in, her response was, "It's God's word. And it is. And it's not just a story, a terrible story that's told. It's definitely not told for our entertainment in some sort of twisted, sordid way. It is for our salvation. It's to point us to the good news that we have in him. I hope then that we see how salvation is offered fully and freely to wronged and yes, even wrongdoers. And we can learn that even perhaps especially through stories like these. It's a longer passage tonight, so we are going to walk through it step by step. We're going to let the story tell itself and bring us to a place, I trust, of worship. And hope, as we look at the text, I do want you to see four things and to read this text through the lens of those four things. This should help us provide some structure to our memory of this story. I'll give them to you up front. I don't always do that. I did it this morning. I'll do it again tonight. I'm not making any promises for the future. But the four things that I want you to see are this. Relationships, ruin, recognition, and redemption. First of all, relationships. Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah... Stop right there. Judah, son of Jacob... He's the son also of his accidental and underappreciated, but more child-productive wife, Lee. Do you remember that story? It's a whole other story. Very important to this um, uh, as well. However, uh, we do not have time to tell that story tonight. In short, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. They had the uh, marriage ceremonies and the festivities and all of that, and he wakes up the next morning, and it is not Rachel in the bed next to him. And um, he, he doesn't seem to like Lee. It actually makes a comment about her eyes. Something I don't know is off. don't know. But he didn't like her. And yet she's the one. That keeps bearing children. He does marry Rachel as well. And uh, Rachel really has a hard time having children. Well, J- Judah is the son of Jacob and his accidental, underappreciated, but child productive wife, Lee. Judah is not the oldest, the oldest was Reuben. But Reuben has lost his esteemed place as the oldest child. Because he had sex with one of his father's wives, Bilhah. And it says, in one line of scripture, and Israel heard of it. And nothing more. Nothing more is said, in fact, until Jacob, also called Israel, is on his deathbed and I don't know if he ever had a conversation about it or if there was any, anything that had happened before then, but as he's dying, at least he lets Reuben know, I know all about it. Now, Judah isn't even the second or the third eldest. The second and the third eldest were Simeon and Levi. Do you remember anything about them? Why, why might they have fallen out of favor? Well, they, they avenged their raped sister, so far so good, by promising her in marriage to her rapist if he and all the men in his town got circumcised. Only to massacre all of the town's men while they were particularly vulnerable just as they were recovering from the procedure. Right. So Jacob comes home one day. And he discovers that they've massacred a village of men. And there's lots of women and children that were in the family encampment. Lots of other belongings that are there. And where did all of this come from? He rebukes them strongly. Seems pretty mild, doesn't it, after a massacre? He tells them off. And in telling them off, it does seem that he's more concerned about how this makes him look among the neighbors. You've made me a stench among the Canaanites. And their response is completely unrepentant. Should we have just let him treat our sister like a prostitute? There's no further resolution. To that story, until our man Jacob is dying, and he lets them know that they've effectively forfeited the blessings and privileges of their status in the family. Now that leaves Judah. Judah is the fourth born, but both favored. Eventually, with the privileges of the eldest, he is still not the favorite. That would be his much younger half brother who finally was born to Rachel. Joseph. Joseph, who is called by his brothers dismissively a dreamer. He and his brothers could not take Joseph seriously. And they certainly were not helped by their father's unabashed favoritism. They saw the way Jacob treated Rachel differently than Lee, and they saw the way Jacob treated Joseph differently from them. that That does impact people, doesn't it? With a family like that, one can perhaps understand what happens next. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brother's and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. But, okay, is he getting away from them? Is he he trying to escape? It says it happened at that time. What time? Maybe cast your eyes over chapter 37. Do you remember Joseph the dreamer? Judah and his brothers rough him up and throw him into a pit. To be fair, some of the brothers wanted to kill him and would have done so had not Reuben, not excusing prior faults, intervened. Judah also intervened. We probably shouldn't give Judah too much of an easy time. He did not think killing and covering up the murder of Joseph was profitable literally, as in financially. He suggested instead that instead of killing him and instead of covering up his murder, they sell him as a slave. He was, after all, Judah says this quite seriously, lacking all self-awareness. He is, after all, our brother. So let's do him the kindness of selling him into slavery. All sorts of things are off about this story. Uh, Twisted though it is, it, it saved Joseph's life. Judah joined his brothers in taking, to cover this up, Joseph's robe, a precious gift from their father, and they stained it with goat's blood, and then they... They innocently approach their father and say, Oh, we found, look what we found. What do you think could have happened? Leaving their father to draw his own conclusions. Namely, that a wild animal had torn his favorite son to pieces and that there were no remains to be found. Perhaps guilt then, rather than just getting away from family drama, is at play in Judah's actions. Notice that the foreboding language of descent is used. He went down. And there's there's multiple layers to that. I know it's used in other places in Scripture, but really in this story, he is going down and down and down. He turned aside to this Adulamite named Hera. There it says, verse 2, "...he saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua." He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. So I want you to think about the severity of what's happening. It's along the lines of what we were talking about this morning. Elimelech leading his family out of the famine-ravaged lands of Israel to Moab. Here, similarly, sometime before that, Judah ventures out of the covenant community, and he forms forbidden deep relationships with people who do not even profess to know or love the Lord God. As bad as Judah's dysfunctional family could be. Might be hard for us to accept this, but they were the best of a bad bunch around them in running from his family, and it would seem his own contribution to their sins, he actually embraces more sin by allying himself with idolaters whose immorality and injustice is not contradictory to, but entirely consistent with their professed beliefs. It's one thing when you profess the Lord, and you contradict... What you do contradicts what you believe. You're believing the right things, but what you're doing is contradicting that. It's quite another when you just embrace all of that, including the complete rejection and profession of of the Lord himself and the behaviors that are fed by that idolatry. Where does that lead? Where does that lead to? Judah? Where does that lead? Any one of us who may wonder, who may leave the covenant community of God's people. Again and again, Scripture testifies, and lived experience and observation, it leads to ruin. It is absolutely crucial and important That we stay connected to God and His people. And that we we not sort of flex the boundaries of that in such a way as to allow unhealthy accommodation to a Christ-rejecting... Never mind Christ-rejecting, because we're not there yet. A God-rejecting world. Ruin. Verse 6, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. There's a Jewish myth that says his precise wickedness was refraining from giving his wife children because he didn't want to ruin his wife's figure thus disrupting his lust the idea is that his wickedness was not worthy of mention in the biblical text he was so utterly pathetic that's purely speculative and for being honest quite likely untrue It's not in the text. It's interesting nonetheless. Scripture, however, does not say more. So we shouldn't say more. Or maybe we don't need more. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. That's enough. We don't need further explanation. And the Lord, the text says, the Lord put Him to death. He can do that. He has the power of life and death. Does He always put the wicked to death? Again, Scripture, personal observation, and lived experience tell us no. In fact, your personal testimony, if you're honest, will tell you no. The Lord doesn't always put the wicked to death. Our presence in this room tonight is a testimony to that. We're still here. But this man he put to death. Okay. When we look at the story of Ur, we see the cycle of sin and the ruin that it brings. We don't have the specifics, but we should get the message. Sin is serious. Sin ruins lives. That leads to more sin, which leads to more ruin. The consequences of sin naturally in the eyes of a holy God is death. And we dare not miss that. The wages of your sin and mine is death. Sin is wickedness against God. Those who sin, as we all have, commit wickedness against Him. God could take your life. Give Him praise that that He hasn't done so. Give him praise that you're here to to, to be here tonight, to to sing his praises and to listen to his word and to enjoy each other's fellowship. We are here because God is not only good and righteous and just, but he's also merciful. And he has withheld what we deserve. Verse 8 says. Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. At this point, I may have lost you. The duty of a brother-in-law. What is this? No one told me about that. Brother-in-law duties. I'm a brother-in-law. That wasn't something that was in the, um, uh, the, you know, pre-marriage counseling for any of us. Now we need to understand what's happening here it is indeed utterly foreign to our knowledge or experience, I think. But... It is essential to understanding not only this passage, but the message of Ruth, which we're exploring. It will come up again as, we're, as, as on Sunday mornings as we're working through Ruth itself. This exact scenario is at play. And this exact story will be referenced. I'm not just telling you crazy stories just to be, you know, um, I don't know, provocative brush, get attention, or anything like that. It is because it's relevant to our expositions through Roof. It's a custom called levirate marriage. It's a Latin word. It basically um, means brother-in-law marriage. It's an ancient insurance policy for a man's sonless widow. Think about it. If a A woman's husband died, and she did not have a son to provide for her. In that cultural context, at that time especially, it left her uniquely vulnerable and at the mercy of all sorts of destructive, communal, economic, and relationship factors. The safeguarding solution for that context was for the younger brother to marry the sonless widow. Are, are you following so far? I'm not saying that you're um, in agreement with the practice or that you think that that's the best solution that could be arrived at, but that's what they did. And there were laws, even in, in God's law, that were um, adjudicating that practice, that proceeding. Attached to this was the idea. Now, this, it gets a little more complicated because some, some might say, okay, well, that, yeah, fair enough, especially if the, if the young man is single and she's widowed and just the, she doesn't have children. It shouldn't be a problem, but it's a little more complicated than that. The, the children would be legally considered those of the deceased brother. And they would be entitled to any rights and privileges that would have gone to that brother, particularly in this scenario if it's the oldest brother. Thereby redeeming and restoring a line which otherwise would have come to an abrupt end. This this past week... Uh, on Iviana's birthday, we were in Stratford-upon-Avon, and we went to Shakespeare's birthplace, and you know they had the, the family tree, the chart, and they're demonstrating how this, this man had two children. One of them died, um, um, uh, they were twins actually. Uh, he had a son, the son died at 11, and he had a daughter. The son's line doesn't go anywhere. The daughter's line goes a little ways but then it, it stops pretty early. There's no direct descendants. And you see these, uh, these charts, these family lines, and there's, there's somewhere, someone somewhere who, who dies, and they don't have any heirs. So this is a way of making sure that the line goes on. It re- redeems and renews that family so that it keeps going. Judah is telling Onan to fulfill this obligation. Sit with me. I know I'm telling you lots of fascinating things. Onan knows... Okay. This is biologically not true. But it is legally true. Sometimes we don't ask. We just just say that's the way it is. Onan knows that the offspring would not be his. It says it in the text. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. His father is saying, go to her, have children with her. They're not going to be my children. Not legally, they'll be hers. And so the complication is compounded, for example, if Onan has another wife. Polygamy was practiced. So if Onan has another wife, and he has children with that wife, Onan's children are still going to be later down the line of the inheritance. The inheritance will go not to Onan and his wife and their children. The inheritance will go to Onan and Ur's wife and the children of Ur by Onan. Family tree stuff gets complicated and messy, but this is particularly so. The inheritance would go to Ur's legal children and thereby Tamar, not any other children or wives, Onan might have had. Okay. Are we all on the same page? So what does he do? Driven by a selfish refusal to honor his family obligations, providing for and protecting Tamar, and ensuring she has a family, and that they have an inheritance, and his brother's line continues, he decides, I'm going to withhold children. But he doesn't mind the sex part. So, so, and I quote now, If it's a bit graphic for you, I'm literally quoting from, not the ESV, but the Net Bible. Whenever he had sexual relations with his brother's wife, he withdrew prematurely so as not to give his brother a descendant. Now that translation seems to focus on the physicality of the sexual act, and I guess it does so delicately, all things considered, The ESV translation focuses more with a view to the completion of the act. So, this is not a text that we would have people read out loud together all at the same time. Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Don't say you weren't warned. What's interesting is that while that is the meaning of the text, the most literal reading says less but reveals more. Most literally, and it would fly over everyone's head if it was translated into English that way, which is why historically it's not been translated that way. It says he would ruin the earth. He would ruin the earth. The Hebrew word used here is actually something of a theme throughout Genesis up to this point. It's a word that's not consistently translated in English as ruin, but that's exactly what it means. Um, In Genesis chapter 6 verse 11, Now the earth was ruined in the sight of God. So God's response is to ruin all flesh with a flood. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah are portrayed as like the world before the flood. And God's response is to, same word, ruin them. God made a good world, people ruined it with their rebellion against God. So they have to face the consequences like for like. Those who ruin shall be ruined. Onan literally would ruin the earth. And if God could hear the voice of Abel's blood crying out of the ground, he could hear the mess Onan would make. It cried out against the selfish immorality of an unjust man who would not redeem, renew, or restore the family of his dead brother, nor would he provide some means of earthly salvation to a vulnerable woman, but he would use her nonetheless, to a point for his own sexual pleasure. Verse 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that He would die like his brothers. So he's sending her away. Sheila's a bit, he's a bit on the young side. Now, bear in mind, they married quite young. I mean, some as young as 12 at this this time in history. It wasn't uncommon or unusual, but Sheila is a little ways off. Many speculate not that far off, a year perhaps. Wait till he grows up, wait till he comes of age remain a widow until that time. But he has no intention of marrying Sheila to Tamar. Tamar does as she's told. She would have worn the clothing of a widow, which was distinct and set her apart. She had no further relational prospects. Her only hope of that kind of relationship was this system really. And so she lives a fairly isolated existence, definitely cut off from the family of her husband or by this point husbands. The widow is alone, two husbands are dead, there are still no children, and Judah instead of blaming his sons is looking at Tamar as bad news for his boys. He really has no intention of giving Sheila to her. Now we need to move on. What was the third word? Remember the first one? Relationships. Second, ruin. Third? Recognition. Fantastic. Recognition. In verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. This Canaanite woman that he really shouldn't have married, but did marry, she dies. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend, still around, seems like the type of guy probably led him astray to begin with. Here are the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with the veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she'd not been given to him in marriage. Notice something here. Something ominous is afoot. It's highlighted by the repetition of the place name Timnah. Timnah. We don't know the meaning of these words, so it's good to find out. You see something mentioned multiple times, kind of unnecessarily. Look it up. Not always, but often it's there for a purpose. It's emphasizing something. Timna means withhold or restrained, kept back, even forbidden. Judah is comforted. His wife has died. He's comforted, but he has withheld comfort and indeed justice from Tamar. He has withheld his son, marriage, children, a family, and an inheritance. It was not his to withhold. It's all funny. He's comforted when he loses his wife, but who will comfort Tamar when she loses her second husband? Both husbands taken because of their wickedness. Another feature you might miss, Tamar dresses as a prostitute. It says her face covered so that only her eyes could be seen. Now that, that whole... Wrapping herself and covering herself like that, again, is culturally not what we would think of when we think of someone dressing as a prostitute. But that's how she does it. And what is, what is vi- visible? Her eyes. And where does she go? Well, she goes to a place called Enam, which means eyes. Because she saw... The text says, with her eyes, that Judah was withholding what was rightfully hers. She recognizes all of this, but she recognizes something too of the character of the man, Judah. He's an impulsive man, he is going to shear his sheep. But if she dresses as a prostitute and simply sits by the side of the road, it will be too much for him to resist. He will make the first move. The bait is herself, and it's set, and Judah bites. Judah, for what it's worth, is not very good at recognition. Verse 15 says, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let let me come into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, and this underlines how impulsive his behavior is at this point, he doesn't have anything to pay her with. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock, but he's not with his flock, he's going to the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your card and your staff that is in your hand. These, it should be noted, were symbols by which a person was recognized. Think about your various identity documents that you might produce. Say a driver's license, a passport, a bank card. That's what she's asking for here. The seal. It, it was a, a cylinder often worn around the, the neck. It was a, a signet. It was the, um, the ancient equivalent of a, of a signet ring. You know, there's, there's things like they press into the, the hot wax, giving authorization, making a, a signature impression in, um, it would have been clay seals at that time. The, the cord that she asked for, that, that would have been the fringes on the hem of his garment. The hem of the garment indicated a person's status and their prestige in society. And so the, a, a bit of the fringe from his, his garment would be something that she could take that he would be identified by. It conveyed some sense of identification, some sense even of, of power and authority. In fact, sometimes men would use this um, uh, uh, embroidery to make seal impressions. They would put the, uh, the, the fringe of their garment on the clay and stamp the, the clay so that it impressed the fringe of their, their garments. And the staff? Well, the staff often had their name carved in it. It was a form of identification. So Judah gave them to her. He went into her. And it says she conceived by him. This is the first time that she's, she's conceived. The problem wasn't her. Her. The first, the first man, we we're not told what was going on there, but they didn't have children. The second one, we are told in a little more detail than we asked for what was happening. And now Judah actually consummates sexual activity with her. And he doesn't know it, but she, she's pregnant. She rose and went away. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Judah sends a young goat, verse 20, by his friend the Edulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. But he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place. You can imagine this is a bit of an awkward question. He, he dresses it up. He doesn't say, where is the prostitute? He, he says, where is the cult prostitute? Because that, that kind of gives a, a, a religious spiritual edge. It it, it was um, common to have um, cult prostitutes, that is people who would perform various sex acts to summon particularly the fertility gods and goddesses to um, bless either families with offspring or uh, farmers with crops, whatever it was they were looking for, and it was considered culturally more acceptable than the other form of prostitution. So, he's, where's the cult prostitute? Now, it didn't say she was dressed as that or pretending to be that. Like, where's the cult prostitute? He's trying to be delicate here, I guess. The cult prostitute who was at Naam at the roadside, and it, it, it's almost. It's not how they mean it necessarily, but it, it, it should condemn in the heart, no cult prostitute has been here. What are you talking about? Judah replied, so the man goes back and tells Judah, I asked, and they didn't know. They said no cult prostitute had been there. Judah says, uh, let, let her keep the things as her own, or we will be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat. I tried to pay her, and you did not find her. It's not great for a man's reputation, is it, if he goes around town asking people very earnestly the whereabouts of a prostitute. Uh, the, the, The question only raises more questions requiring an explanation, which leads only to embarrassment. It's probably best to leave it. We're not going to bring any more attention to ourselves than is strictly necessary. About three months later, Judah is told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law... Get get this. After all that we have read and the sordid things that have happened, all these guys messing about, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. And there's a sense of righteous indignation. Moreover, she is pregnant by the immorality. And one can, one can imagine Judah bristling with rage. Bring her out and burn her. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are. Signet. The cord. The staff. Tamar effectively has put a mirror to Judah's face so that he recognizes something of himself beyond just the forms of identification. He was about to, people are divided on this, at best have Tamar branded. A permanent mark that would follow her for the rest of her days. Adulteress, even though she's a widow. Immoral. Whore. One can imagine the various things that people would have thought. At worst, He was going to burn her to death for immorality. All while knowing He Himself Has been immoral and unjust. Three months previous, his wife is barely cold in the grave, and he's cavorting with a random prostitute that he saw by the roadside. But now, tomorrow. Do you recognize these things? The father of the child (coughs) gave me these. And it's there for everyone to see, and they cannot deny, Mm -hmm. because the staff has his name, and the cord has his embroidery, Mm -hmm. and the seal is his signature. What was the fourth word? Redemption. How, how do we get redemption out of this strange and terrible story? When, when everything clicks, Judah realizes that Tamar, taking matters, as so often happens, inappropriately, we do have to say, into her own hands, nonetheless did so in pursuit of justice, righteousness, and the faith, that she would have a son. And that that son would be the redemption of the family and he would receive the inheritance. In fact, that son would bring to her an inheritance. That son would be her safety, her security. And so Judah says, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila." And this is important. He did not know her again. That is to say, there, there was no more sexual activity between them. He, didn't, he knew that what he was doing was off base. He knew that it was wrong. He didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. He doesn't intend to pursue an ongoing relationship with her, nor does he, he seek that. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand. The midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on them because with twins it's complicated in a society where the inheritance is so important. It's the oldest that's going to get the inheritance. I I, I do tell, um, as a twin myself, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I I grasp for everything because I'm 18 minutes younger than my brother. And um, there was a, a Nigerian sister who told me that her understanding was that the oldest is the one with uh, uh, the authority to send the younger out into the world first. I liked that, uh, but I, I don't know that that's how they, pra- that's not how they practice things. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, my, my parents jokingly referred to my middle child phase. They know I resent that deeply. Um, I, I I insist that there was never a time in our family when I was the uh, the the youngest child or the middle child. I was the joint oldest child. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's not how it works. <laughs> this this sounds like a very painful labor. Um, the child's. Arm comes out, and the nurse is tying a cord around it. And then the arm goes back in. And this other child without the cord comes out first. And so, uh, that just sounds brutal. What a breach you have made for yourself, the uh, midwife says. (laughs) Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Uh, afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zara. So Tamar got her family. And an otherwise dead family was resurrected by the birth of a son, and indeed sons. The oldest, not the one with the thread, the one who actually came out first, his name means, as I said, breach, or if that you're, you're a bit lost with that, breakthrough. And it was a breakthrough. Uh, not only for Tamar, but for Judah. The fourth child of his less favored mother, who was himself less favored than his much younger half-brother, who began our story having left his family after selling his brother into slavery, is not only redeemed, but is restored Twice he leads his brothers to Egypt. Read the chapters that follow. Twice he leads his brothers to Egypt to get food. On the second occasion, he takes his other half-brother, Joseph's brother, Benjamin, pledging safety and offering to bear the blame forever if anything happens to him. He rushes not to self-preservation as he used to, but to others' protection. Not to sin, but to confession. Even confessing sins he did not commit. He intercedes for his family. He takes the blame for things he has not done. He reconciles with his long-lost brother. He leads and brings his whole extended family to safety in Egypt. And ultimately, he receives the blessing of his father. Now, if you're all if you're not beginning to see something of Jesus in all of that, you're missing a good opportunity. But the blessing of his father should drive it home. Because there on his deathbed, he's passed over Reuben because of the sins that he committed. He's passed over Simeon and Levi because of the sins they committed. But he lands on Judah, and he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Judah's son, Perez, had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son. And we pass down generation by generation through sons, and we get to the great son of Judah who receives worship and praise who conquers the greatest of enemies, even death, who is called the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings, who rode a donkey like a peacetime king to Jerusalem to drink the fruit of the vine and to pour out His blood like crushed grapes with joy. And for the joy of his people. I didn't say it when I was talking about the meaning of names. But Judah means praise. And it also means praised. And together these things, praise and praised, meet in the person and work of Jesus. Son not only of David and of Abraham. But son of Perez the son of Judah, by Tamar. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would lead us to worship Jesus, to give praise, that out of the mess and dysfunction of rebellious, sinful humanity, you have brought redemption out of a line so filled with the complexities of corruption you have given to us the Christ sinlessly perfect righteous, holy, just abounding in steadfast love, mercy and grace thank you for Jesus thank you for his life for His death, for His resurrection, for His ascension, for His intercession. Thank you that because of Jesus, we are ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. We give you praise. May you be praised in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.